Hello, and welcome to the ChannelBuzz.ca podcast. I'm Robert Dutt, editor of ChannelBuzz.ca, and as always, your host for the show. Uh, today, we're joined on the podcast by one of our most frequent guests, ESET's global security evangelist, Tony Anscombe, as, as we discuss what ESET has been seeing in the cybersecurity game since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, in fact, we go back to the days before the invasion as Anscombe recounts the number of data wipers that ESET saw deployed against Ukraine in the lead-up to the invasion. We're not saying who did it, but, you know, think about it. We also discuss how an attempt to use malware against industrial control systems in Ukraine was foiled, why security audits are more important than ever in an era where cyber war is a major factor, uh, what kind of attacks Russian infrastructure might be under right now, and we get Anscombe's thoughts on why security skill sets might be required not only in companies' war rooms, but on the board of directors as well in the not-so-distant future. As always, it's a fascinating conversation with an industry leader, so let's get right into it. My chat with ESET's Tony Anscombe. Tony, thanks for taking the time. Oh, always a pleasure to be here, Rob. I uh, wanted to take some time to to pick your brain a little bit about uh, about what you guys have been seeing uh, since the, the beginning of the, the war in Ukraine. It's... Uh, Russia has has so many different facets and on the security side, you know, from uh, from the potential of, of them uh, condoning attacks as a state to no longer cooperating with uh, countries who uh, they now identify as unfriendly um, in, in their anti uh, malware efforts. Um, I, I guess to just throw it open, what have you guys seen in terms of uh, activity trends, the way things are going uh, since the Russian army started uh, moving into Ukraine? Well, firstly, let, let's be clear, attribution is very complicated and very complex. And as a mm -hmm. company, we don't tend to get into nation-state attribution. We leave that to uh, three-letter agencies or government bodies or, or people that do the in-depth intelligence work on trying to attribute what a group may be doing to, to how that group is funded or what their motivations are. Mm -hmm. So at the start of this conflict, uh, we saw a number of data wipers. Now, you know, we're all very familiar with ransomware, you know, where that encrypts your data and you know, you're held to monetary, monetary ransom to get that data un unencrypted. Data wipers are exactly what they say on the tin. It's about destruction of data. So there is no potential to get the data back. And we saw uh, a number of, of data wipers that had been compiled way before the conflict, but that we'd never seen before. One hit the day before uh, the conflict in uh, Ukraine started. And then we saw two more data wipers post the conflict starting. And they were aimed at uh, financial organizations or government organizations. And yeah, they did exactly what they said on the tin, as I said, that they, they cleared the data on those machines. So that's, that's, that's destructive. However, in the arsenal of cyber warfare, it's a relatively minor thing. But of course, it depends on what machines they're actually on. You, know, mm -hmm. you put those on critical machines, and that can be very different. And then uh, we got, uh, in collaboration with the Computer Emergency Response Team, so the CERT in Ukraine, uh, we uh, discovered with them some uh, industrial control system malware. Uh, 
mm-hmm. ICS malware. Now, this is very different. You and I, you know, and we're all familiar, aren't we, with, with malware that hits your Windows machine, your phone, or, or, or your Mac, or whatever it might be, that it gets onto a device, yeah, it does something bad, and, and off it runs. Now, industrial control system malware is a, a completely different beast. This is using customized and specialized protocols, instruction sets. Uh, it's used, you know, industrial control systems are used in energy grids, you know, in industry, on oil rigs, and, you know, where, where you kind of, what I define as a bo- the black box that runs something industrial. And this is a very specialized area. And this, this malware, uh, was there, was there to disrupt the energy grid in substations in Ukraine. Now, fortunately, it was stopped. And it was scheduled to actually kick in on the 8th of April. And it also had on the side of it, so, so on the same networks, we found copies of data wipers as well. Now, we can attribute, we can attribute this ICS malware to an earlier piece of ICS malware that we also discovered in Ukraine that had taken down electrical power grids in 2016. And that's hmm. called Indestroyer. And the code similarities and the patterns, etc., and all the way it works make us fairly confident with a very high level of confidence that actually this was written by the same authors of the original Indestroyer, which is why this one got called Indestroyer 2. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at... Uh, the attribution of Indestroyer, that comes from a group called Sandworm, and Sandworm is attributed by others as uh, part of the Russian state organization. Like I say, that's an attribution that you'll see from people like CISA in the U.S., all right. So a, a lot going on there. Um, I, I, I know in, in the past we've talked about, you know, kind of the, the efforts to to fight cybercrime on, on a number of fronts. And, and one of the recent victories, I, I recall, was was Russia helping in uh, the arrest of, of some folks from uh, from Revil or our evil. I'm not exactly sure how one pronounces that when spoken. Um, have, have you seen... Is, is, have you seen or do you expect that kind of thing to continue or is that simply off the table uh, as, as long as uh, Russia is looking at uh, much of the West as a uh, not friendly entity and uh, and vice versa? Would I expect cooperation on, on law enforcement, things like that? No, I, I can't imagine um, the law enforcement offices in Russia are no longer talking to whether it's Interpol, Europol, or whether it's the FBI, I can't imagine they have an open dialogue anymore. Um, and you've also got several of those, what I define monetizing cybercrime groups, mm-hmm. uh, also like you know, like the, the likes of Reval and others, um, who've pledged allegiance one way or the other, you know, one way or the other. They're either you know with it, and some of them have actually. If you look at the Five Eyes Nation uh, statement this week, so the Five Eyes Nations are US, UK, Australia, uh, I think it's Canada and New Zealand, Mm -hmm. um, made a statement and and they turned and said that some of the cybercrime groups are looking for retaliation uh, for cyber attacks that are happening on Russia. Hmm. So, you know, I I, I can't see any law enforcement cooperative yeah, or collaborative uh, enforcement's happening anytime soon. 
Well, and and as as it would seem on uh, on every front and in, in well any conflict really, there's uh, there's going to be uh, misinformation, misdirection, etc., misattribution flying in in both directions uh, simply because of the the nature of uh, the fog of war and the uh, the desires to uh, keep certain keep certain things under wraps and uh, highlight certain things depending on from which side you view things. Absolutely. And I'm sure that, you know, both sides have in, uh, let's say, the war chest at the back of the war room, you know, this, this safe that has a, a, a pack of zero-day vulnerability stake that could be exploited or, or, a, or a stack of very malicious malware in that safe that could be unleashed uh, given the moment or, or the opportunity needing to, to happen. But my own theory on this is that Actually, both sides know this, the safe at each of the war rooms exists. And the problem is, is if you unleash uh, any zero day or, or start exploiting some unknown issue, then potentially it's got this, this <laughs> cross-contamination, which, which you've seen in, in you know, viruses and malware spread quickly, things like NotPetya and some of the other big, big hist- kind of historic ones. If you... So I don't think I think both sides have a digital deterrent. That's my theory that because both sides know they could unleash all, all sorts of chaos on the internet, I think they're actually not unleashing that chaos. And what you're seeing is exceptionally targeted and very individualized attacks on, for example, uh, power substations and things like that. So when the logic of nuclear weapons gets applied to uh, to to cybersecurity, essentially. Yeah, I'm kind of curious in, in five years' time of whether somebody's going to create a summit of uh, you know we should de de digital de digital zero day vulnerability meeting mm. where they agree to well we get rid of five of ours if you get rid of five of yours. I you know I'm I, I'm kind of bringing light to it in some way, but I, also there's a really serious message in what I'm trying to say is. Yeah, it's wrong that these things are held on to. And as we've seen in the past uh, with Eternal Blue was a good example. Eternal Blue was a leaked tool set. That was a zero-day vulnerability that was actually, unfortunately, leaked onto the internet and, uh, and exploited that was being used by what I define as one of the ally governments. Mm. Um, so a, a bit of a wild card in here. Early in the early in the conflict, I haven't heard so much since early days of the conflict. We heard that uh, the internet's favorite hacker slash whatever they may be group, anonymous, was going to uh, go after uh, Vladimir Putin and and anything it could on the the Russian side. Has that amounted to anything? Have we seen anonymous do anything worth worth mention there, or is that sort of a uh, is, is that a non factor at this point? To my knowledge, not to my not to my knowledge. That doesn't mean it hasn't taken place. But then you've mm. also got so the the cybercrime groups in Russia. As I say in the Five Eyes announcement, they say that some of these cybercrime groups are saying they want uh, retaliation for cyber attacks on Russia. So, are they are these cyber attacks happening in Russia and we're not hearing about them? Possibly. Okay, um, uh, you know, you said attribution is is not for you guys. It's for for governments, and and no less a no less a government source than uh, the U.S. President Joe Biden at the early on in the in in festivities, uh, basically warned businesses be more uh, be more aware, beef up your defenses because there's likely stuff coming, and uh, that could be 
uh, a general statement, I think, was directed primarily at the largest of large enterprise. But um, basically, what what should businesses be doing in terms of security as pertains to to this aspect of it, or is or is it just a matter of um, having having a strong defense across the board? Well, there is having a, a strong defense, but this is actually where I think uh, a lot of channel partners and and specialized security you know security uh, consulting companies need to be contacting their customers, especially if they've got customers in the utility sector. And let me give you a feel for that. I mean, in the US, you have 50,000 water utility companies. Mm-hmm. But I don't know about how whether they're that distributed in Canada, but now take you know, regionalized utility companies. Uh, so I'm going to use where I live uh, near San Francisco, you know, I live in a community of about 15,000 people. There's a ut- water utility company that just services those 15,000 people. And I look at them and think, you know, do you have the right infrastructure in place for me to consider you cyber secure? And the answer is no. And I think this is where the IT companies that service them should be assisting them in bringing them up to scratch. And I think if you look at the the tone and the messaging coming out of the White House of saying we need to up the game on security and in critical infrastructure, et cetera. I think that's true in every uh, every country. Mm. And in a lot of instances, these small utilities have been underinvested in cybersecurity. Yeah. So they've got archaic. They don't have the specialized knowledge. So they don't have the people and the resources because they're, they are small businesses uh, and they need a lot of what funding and help in bringing their systems up to scratch. Now, there's there's the obvious things that, you know, you can list off and turn and say, well, you know, close down all those remote access points, make sure there's VPNs in place, make sure there's two-factor authentication, make sure there's strong passwords. That sounds like I'm a cybersecurity person saying those same things that we often say, as you know, Rob. Um, but I think it's wider than that. I think somebody needs to actually step into those organizations. And even if they are bigger and they have more infrastructure in place and actually do a full audit, sit back, do a full audit, look at actually the cyber resilience plan that the companies have and actually make sure that there's there's a short-term and long-term plan to bring them up to the very latest uh, in cybersecurity architecture to make sure they're being protected in the right way. And there's the, you know, there's the obvious things as well of you know, making sure they've got anti-malware devices and EDR and all those sorts of mm-hmm. things as well. But I think that's the opportunity for the channel you know, to actually go and, go and offer those services into those customers. How do you get creative with that? You know, you're, you're talking about some, some opportunities there clearly, but uh, you're, I think you're going to um, rapidly run into the usual budget and staffing challenges that security projects face. Is there, is there anything that we can be doing better to, to support, especially smaller businesses that are, uh, that are looking to ramp up their, their involvement here in, in terms of the services available for them or in, in terms of uh, support to get that done? Well, I think the budget thing is is maybe you know we could be opportun- very opportunistic at this moment in time. I think if you're talking to companies like that, yeah, there is a there is an, a heightened threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we've already spoken on here, you know, we've seen malware infecting industrial control systems. So the the threat and the ability is there for these things to happen. 
But also you've got every government in the world warning companies and urging companies mm. to step up their game. So I think any any consulting company or any conversation with a small utility company's board will get budget released, even if the budget wasn't there to start with. So is that opportunistic? Is that using this current conflict to, to grab those extra dollars to bring cybersecurity up to scratch? Yes. But I think that protection is, is completely essential. Um, so I think I think that's important. But what about those smaller companies? You know, what are, what can other companies do? Well, I, I would be running that audit, even if I was a small company. I'd be taking sitting back, taking a look at what I've got, and just making sure, even if it is the point of implementing two-factor authentication and closing down that remote access point that nobody uses very frequently, or mm-hmm. yeah, just taking those moments to close the what I define as the simple doors that are ajar or, or could easily be opened mm-hmm. and closing those down, that in itself would do everybody a power of good. And those are, those are services a lot of partners, um, you know, hang their hats on. And it sounds like an opportunity to, uh, to go in there with even a broader array of customers and uh, perhaps, perhaps test some new things or look at some new aspects of the audit that they haven't in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we think about, you know, when we talk about critical infrastructure, critical infrastructure is pretty broad, isn't it? You know, when somebody <laughs> says critical infrastructure to me, I, I often think of power companies, water companies, and, you know, maybe, maybe the train network or something like that. But, you know, if you actually start thinking about it, you've got your, you've got your local bus services, you've got, yeah, there are so many things that fall under critical infrastructure. Um, so I, I think it's, it's actually a very broad broad brush of what you can consider critical infrastructure are you yeah is the local pharmacy a critical infrastructure it is to that community because if somebody messes up their systems and people stop getting their drugs you know, your mm. local hospitals your local doctor's surgeries these are all part of critical infrastructure we rely on them as people and those are those are more um IT type of opportunities, though I'm I'm curious if you see an opportunity for for more IT centric channel partners to kind of build up uh, knowledge, expertise, abilities around the the OT kind of stuff, the the operational technology that is uh, interfacing with IT, but is such a big part of uh, a lot of those critical infrastructure plays in particular, and and other businesses as well. But I, again, when you when you think of you know some of the the big OT presences, you think often of of the utilities and, and the likes of that. Well, uh, and when you say, you know, you mean bring those partners that aren't necessarily focused on cybersecurity into that cybersecurity fold? Is that, is, sorry, is that what you mean? Or, or coming at it from the other way, right? those who are familiar with, with cybersecurity and have the chops there kind of building up the knowledge around uh, the OT side of things so that they can help facilitate those audits and facilitate security across the the IT network and uh, the OT assets throughout an organization. Sure. Well, I'd like to. I, I would like to think if somebody is proficient in cybersecurity as a, a vendor there, or as a reseller, they're actually you know already capable of running those type of audits, etc. Because those are important. Those are important things that they sh- should have already been doing. Is there an opportunity for you know companies that don't don't fully have the cybersecurity stuff in their pocket or is there comp- uh, and is there opportunity for cybersecurity companies to broaden what they're doing as you've just mentioned yeah absolutely yeah i think one thing that this is this has put on the map firmly 
is that you're going to see possible legislation in upping the cybersecurity game. So if you look at, mm. you know, you've got the executive order in the US, uh, you've got, um, I don't know whether, you've, whether you're aware, but the SEC, so the US Securities and Exchange Commission recently, mm-hmm. uh, upped their game slightly in making firstly advisors and so your, your financial advisors and brokers and et cetera, they were required to disclose cyber attacks and there was some limitations put around how they they act uh, that was broadened recently to any company listed on their exchange and one of the things <laughs> that i think was super interesting about this particular piece of regulation that was implemented was it included having uh, you had to disclose if there was somebody on your board with cybersecurity skill sets or knowledge oh wow now the interesting part about that is if you haven't got that on your board, you're now going to be looking at it going, ah, you know, there's a bit of a gap in our board here. We should go out and find a board member that's got these skill sets, which means, you know, firstly, I think there's an opportunity for lend me a board member if you're mm. a cybersecurity company <laughs> uh, to a lot of these companies. But also it means that the cybersecurity teams in organizations are going to have a friend mm-hmm. on the board who is there and they're going to be, you know, prioritizing budget and spending and asking difficult questions at the board level around cybersecurity. So, I mean, that has two things. It it puts pressure down from the board that things need to be done, but it also puts pressure coming up that actually we're asking for budget and the board needs to be signing this off. So I think that's a win-win. That will be uh, that'll be an interesting one, a really interesting one to watch in the long term, uh, I think, as that security as a part of the the board of directors becomes a more uh, expected and ingrained part of corporate culture. Yeah, and while that's specifically around the SEC, you know, know, and I know that those things tend to then move across borders and boundaries and become the norm. So I would expect other exchanges and other regulators in other countries to start adopting a similar approach. So I, if... If, if you're sitting here listening to this and you don't have a secure cybersecurity person on your board, I think in a year's time you're going to need one. So start looking now. Get in before the rush. Um, uh, we've, we've covered a, a lot of territory here. Anything else that, that especially uh, channel partners should be keeping an eye on as, uh, as this conflict continues to unfold and, and as the, uh, the madcap world of security continues to do uh, madcap security things? Well, as we know, a lot of cyber attacks, be it whatever their motivation is, um, unfortunately has an element of human behavior in it. Absolutely. If you've got cybersecurity awareness training in your portfolio to be able to offer your customers, you know, stop offering it as the cyber risk insurance once a year annual thing. And actually, I would be contacting those companies now and turning around and saying, look, what we want to do is do the big training once a year but we you know recommend like shorter training every three months you know refresh people of what the threats are or what the current phishing scams look like etc and just make sure that that education stays there as always a bunch of good advice in there tony thanks so much for taking the time always good to chat rob There you have it, how cyber warfare and real warfare are interacting with each other and what it means for all of us, courtesy of ESET's Tony Anscombe. I'd like to thank Tony for joining us for the podcast, thank ESET for their continuing support of the site, and of course, thank you for listening. 
The channel Buzz.ca podcast will be back later this week as we'll stick with the security theme and be joined by Barracuda MSP's Alessia Klevchuk to discuss what Barracuda and its MSP customers are seeing in terms of spear phishing attacks. It's one of the fastest growing methods of attack, so do be sure to give a listen. Between now and then, we'd invite you to subscribe to or follow the podcast in your podcast app of choice. And should you feel so inclined, please do leave a rating and review for the show. Until next time, I'm Robert Dutt for ChannelBuzz.ca. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you around the channel.